0: Welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson.
1: Thank you, Vanna, and welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, along with my sidekick, Rodney, as usual. We've got a real treat for you folks today. As you know, I'm a huge Kentucky Wildcat basketball fan, and today my special guest is Jamal Mashburn, one of the legends of Kentucky basketball. Jamal, thanks so much for stopping by.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it as well.
1: So, uh, you know, growing up in Kentucky, basketball is a huge thing for, uh, you know, all the guys and a lot of women, too. My grandparents were huge fans, and that's what got me into U.K. basketball. And, um, you know, in the late 80s, we got on probation with an NCA violation, and it was a, a real tough time in the program. And things started to turn around when Rick Pitino was hired by our new Athlete Director, Sam Newton. And the recruit that really made the difference with U.K. basketball was Jamal Mashburn. And I remember the first time I met Jamal was um, you guys were doing a tour in, in Paducah. It was like a preseason scrimmage at Paducah Tillman High School, and I remember looking at my grandfather and saying, man, you know, because, I mean, you're this big guy, and we, of course, the guys that were on the team, like John Pelfrey and Richie Farmer and those guys, they were, you know, not built like Jamal was, and I'm like, this guy's going to be some player, and he was shooting threes and all this stuff at 6'8", and I'm like, wow, so, you know, he turned into a tremendous player, and we were able to meet in Miami on by circumstance and uh you know so i'm really thrilled he's able to come on and talk about his time at uk and the nba and what he's doing in his life post basketball which is pretty awesome so jamal what was it like coming from new york to kentucky it's got to be a huge culture shock
0: uh yeah it was a huge culture shock but it wasn't nothing that i wasn't prepared for and uh people probably don't know a lot about my family history but i was the only child growing up in harlem raised by my mother and my father was a uh Former professional boxer and then became a police officer at NYPD. So, yes, it was a huge culture shock from the standpoint that you know I could no longer get on a train and just go to downtown Manhattan or or get somewhere rather quickly. And I needed a car in Kentucky. So, and I didn't even have a driver's license. And you know people talked a little bit slower, people in New York, and it, it was a different environment, but. For me, that was what I was looking for. And the biggest thing that I was looking for as a 17-year-old kid coming into college was a coach that can help develop my game so I can ultimately be a professional basketball player. And when I was being recruited out of out of Cardinal Hayes High School in the Bronx, you know, I had a number of... Uh, offers and went to Wake Forest and Syracuse for a visit, for an official visits, and fell in love with the Kentucky program, and that was my first visit, and the reason I fell in love with it was because of Coach Patino and the plan that he had in place and how hard he would work his players and develop his players, and interestingly enough, I never came to a Kentucky on my official visit. I never went to a basketball game. They took me to a football game and that was by design because my thought process was I'm I'm going to be spending more time at the school than just doing basketball season so I wanted to see what it looked like as a regular student and somebody who just was a you know going around campus and and doing different things so I fell in love with the the size of the campus I fell in love with coach Fitino and the assistant coaches Herb Sindek at the time was an mm-hmm. assistant coach at the University of Kentucky and he was a lead recruiter on me and then obviously got introduced to Billy Donovan and Tubby Smith as well and strength coach Rock Oliver uh, who had me in his office a number of times so um, it, it was a good experience it was different but it was something that I was looking forward to and wanted to because I wanted to change the pace from New York City life now I could have went to St. John's and stayed in the Northeast and I still probably would have been very successful but for me I was looking for a change of pace and and to get out of that Harlem environment and New York City environment, Northeast environment, and experience something different, which Kentucky offered.
1: So um, what, what did Patino and Syndex say that convinced you to come? Or was it more of like, you know what, you really liked the system from uh, Patino as an NBA coach with the Knicks, and that's what drew you more than what they had to, to say? Um, well, they were, to make a long story short, not go,
0: go back too far, I, you know, I was being recruited since I was uh, 13, 14 years old, and Herb Sindek was recruiting me when they were in Providence. So I had a uh, and coach Patino was at Providence. and They went to the final four and then ultimately coach Patino left to take the head job of the New York Knicks and then leave there to go to the university of Kentucky. So I watched coach Patino and his style of play and everything like that. To me, his background as a NBA coach solidified it because he knew what a pro was going to look like. And I trusted him that he can help me get there. But the main thing that Coach Spatino, um, and his recruiting for me, uh, he was always very honest with me. And that was something that I look for in the recruiting process. Because I, I had a lot of coaches tell me a lot of different things. And, and, and pretty much in the recruiting process is all about building relationships. And some people lie to develop a relationship to get you on campus. And the one thing that Coach Patino stressed to me, he was like, you know, you can come here and if you work hard, you can get a chance to start. Now, I looked at the roster that he had and I was like, well, I don't see why he couldn't offer me a starting position at this particular point. But the main theory behind that and as me and him continue to talk was that, you know, you get everything that you earned and I respected that from Coach Patino and the hard work and everything that you had to put in and nothing was going to be given to you. And that was pretty much it. And, and also Coach Patino was the first one of the first coaches that really bought into me wanting to carry a briefcase after I finished my career, even if a college athlete or as a professional athlete. And um, he said he could help me in a lot of different ways uh, to facilitate that dream as well as being a pro. So it was more about his honesty and his integrity and how he dealt with me. And Coach Patino, if anybody that's known him or played for him, his all his players love him. Yeah. You know, even if you don't finish out your career there, he still maintains a relationship. And to me, he's a, a teacher by nature and also um, a player's coach. But he expects a lot out of you and, and that's what I was looking for. So those things in the in the in a nutshell kinda drove me to Kentucky and I didn't necessarily worry about what I would be missing in New York City. I just knew that if I was going to pursue my goals and my dreams, that was an opportunity for me. So it didn't bother me that my freshman year, that um, the school was going to still be on probation or the basketball program was still going to be on probation. And we couldn't go to the NCAA tournament until my sophomore year. And we wouldn't have any television appearances nationally and different things like that. But for me, that didn't bother me at all. I just wanted to go out there and play and work hard and see how it came along alongside a coach and and teammates who were chasing the same thing. And really what we all were chasing was to prove ourselves and and also to be winners and to do it the right way. And uh, that's what we accomplished.
1: And I remember back in those days, too, um, that first year, that I mean, you had guys like Reggie Hansen on the team. You had John Pelfrey, Darren Feldhaus, Farmer, Sean Woods. I, th- I think Jonathan Davis was on that team as a reserve. And you came in with Jamel Martinez, who was a Miami guy. So it's kind of funny, him coming from Miami to Kentucky, that was probably a huge adjustment for him because when I moved from Kentucky to Miami, it was a huge <laughs> adjustment for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Jamel, Jamel and also that recruiting class was uh, uh, – Toomer and, and um, to Jody Thompson. As well. From Mississippi, so Coach Patino and the University of Kentucky, because they were on probation, they only had three scholarships to offer. And I remember Coach Patino coming to sit with me, and the first thing he wanted was three players from New York City. And a lot of players, a lot of people forget, back in New York City, back in the late 80s to the probably the mid 90s, that was the best brand of high school basketball in the country. So we probably had you know, 20 guys just in the Catholic school league that were division one players. And then you had in a public school league, you know, you had probably 20 guys there that were division one players. Um, some did go division one, some went to junior college and eventually went to division one schools. And Coach Patino wanted three New York City players, and I tried to recruit Adrian Autry, who wound up going to Syracuse. And a yeah. gentleman by the name of Anthony Pell who actually chose Villanova and then actually wanted to transfer and go to Fresno State out in California. And uh, Jamel Martinez showed up and Carlos Tuma showed up, and me and Jamel hit it off rather quickly. We were roommates, and Coach Patino knew who he, what he was doing, and we're still good friends to this day. So uh, uh, we had a lot of memories. We came down here on my freshman year to Miami, on spring break because we couldn't get into the tournament. So to me, that Kentucky experience and that freshman year allowed me to live not only the, the dream of being a, a student athlete, but also to be a, a kid in college as well, because I got to participate in some things because we couldn't go to the NCAA tournament. So it was a lot of fun, met a lot of great people who I stay in close contact with to today. And then some of my good friends and, and uh, we've gone on to do different things in the game and outside of
1: the game. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, during that season, they would always show the ball games on uh, tape delay, and they'd have just the local um, UK network with Rob Bromley and Dave Baker doing the broadcast. Because I mean, like you said, they couldn't have the games on ESPN or CBS. Mm-hmm. So, but that year was a, a successful year because I remember that we we actually won the SEC that year. We weren't able to technically recognize that as a championship but patino had you guys cutting the nets down and i remember that and i remember like when reggie hansen graduated he um patino set up the reggie hansen hustle award no reggie hansen sacrifice award or maybe it was a hustle award and you know the spirit of that team was this underdog mentality that I think really appealed to the Kentucky fans which Kentucky fans were going to recruit uh, for the Kentucky team no matter what but I think that group of guys was really special because it was this underdog blue collar mentality that really resonates with a lot of people and we were successful and you know guys like you became household names and Pelfrey and Fellhouse and Hanson and, and all those guys and it was a really great dream that Got even better the sophomore year, when um, of course we go through and um, in '92 that was um, the year that we didn't win the SEC regular season, but we won the NCAA tournament or the SEC tournament down in Birmingham, and I'll never forget that because. I mean, that was when Shaq was at LSU. And, of course, I mean, Shaq was just so dominant because he was so big, he couldn't really do much with him. But Kentucky was going to have to play the winner of LSU and Tennessee. And there was a huge fight. This guy, Carlos Groves, from Tennessee got into a fight with Shaq. And, like, Dale Brown, the coach from LSU, was, like, running out there and got kicked out. So Shaq got kicked out of the game and it ended up where LSU lost – and then I think Alabama ended up winning to advance to play Kentucky, and we took care of Alabama in that SEC tournament. And if I remember correctly, you were the MVP.
0: Yeah, correct. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, in the SEC tournament and us getting back into, you know, SEC tournament play and also NCAA tournament play, you know, we were underdogs and weren't expected to do a lot. I mean, um, we had that, that – um, work ethic. We were well conditioned. We shot the three point shot and we also pressed the trap mm. quite a bit. So I believe that, you know, coach Patino brought a different style of basketball that we are, we've come accustomed to today, which is shooting a three point shot and not necessarily going for layups and also trapping and and, and doing a lot of different things. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Coach Patino uh, revived uh, Kentucky basketball from a spirit standpoint, you know, and it just wasn't going in there. It was it was different than I think any other Kentucky coaches has done it. And even till today. And when we got to the SEC tournament, I do remember us sitting in a um, restaurant and watching the game where Shaq got tossed and I think he was suspended. We didn't know what was going on, but a lot of people fail to remember that Alabama had a great team. That and Robert
1: Ori on that James. team.
0: Yeah, Robert Ori, uh, James Hollywood Robinson, and a, and other cast of Carol were very Melvin athletic. So, so no matter who we faced it was going to be Shaq or, or Alabama, we were going to be in for a fight. But we were prepared to do that, you know. And um, one of the things that we often look forward to, we often look forward to games because practice was much harder than the mm-hmm. games. Um, so um, what he put us through in practice, the game was a uh, easy breezy. I mean, it was, it was like a cakewalk. It was like a shoot around for us because um, we would rather play a game than go to practice and deal with coach Martino for an hour and 45 minutes of an intense practice. But, you know, that was a, an opportunity for, Kentucky to get back into the tournament, SEC tournament and to win that thing and and then go on to the, the NCAA tournament. I don't think a lot of people expected a lot of us, but we expected a lot of ourselves.
1: Yeah, I know. It was a it was a great run and it was like, you know, Kentucky's back on top and and uh you know, I really love that team, of course, the the seniors were known as the Unforgettables and um But it was just a great run, and it was this philosophy with Patino. I remember at his press conference, he said, we're going to win, and we're going to win right away. And he came in with this confidence and bravado that I think, if you didn't have a coach like that, that... The, the players weren't going to buy into it and the fans needed to hear that too because, I mean, it was dire times in Kentucky, which, you know, the Kentucky fans were like, well, you know, that stuff's probably going on in North Carolina and all this stuff and they're never going to cite Dean Smith for that or Coach K. But the bottom line is we got caught in, in probation and the rebuild happened a whole lot faster than what we were expecting and I remember when we got in that SEC or the NCAA tournament, we faced a UMass with John Calipari as a coach. And it was mm-hmm. in the Sweet 16. And they had a, a good team. I know there was a guy, Lou Rowe, on that team. And Tony Barbie is an assistant now with Calipari and a few other guys. And that was a tough matchup. And um, and we pulled it through. But then it takes us to the, the Duke game. The, yeah. the game that we all remember. I'll just say, what was it like playing in that Duke game? Because I know when I filled out my brackets that year, for the, uh, I was like, man, you know, I, I never want to pick Kentucky to lose, but it's like that Leitner team with Bobby Hurley and Grant Hill, they were just such a dominant team. I mean, I was just thinking, man, let's just not get blown out in this game. And all it wasn't, it turned into a, a classic. So what was it like being in that game?
0: Well, first um, and foremost, before we even got to the game, my particular run in the NCAA tournament to get to that final eight was was pretty spectacular. I mean, we had a... uh a, uh, a heck of a run and style of play and, and, and in different venues and it was something different for me but I was already already a seasoned veteran being a sophomore at that particular time and I felt I could make my mark in the tournament and and hopefully get those uh, four seniors at that particular time a chance to sniff a, a Final Four or even a championship and, and so we had a heck of a run we did beat UMass and Calipari and that, I don't even think that was even really of a close of a game as people expected and, and then we faced Duke. And I got history with a lot of uh, some of the Duke guys over there and Bobby Hurley, which I used to play against him since he's a Jersey kid in New York quite a bit. So we had a lot of battles there from when he was with uh, St. Anthony's in Jersey. And then also Grant Hill. You know, I met Grant Hill on the AAU circuit at 13 years old. And we seemed to always connect and play against one another in top competitions throughout the summer. So there was a. Uh, um, some people on that team that were I was very familiar with. And what I remember most about that Duke team is the only way that I can equate their popularity was they were very similar to the Chicago Bulls back in the nineties with Michael Jordan. And I, I played against Michael Jordan and pros and watched the Chicago bulls with Dennis Rodman and all those people where they would come into as a, the, the guest, the whole, the, the guest team. And they would probably get more applause than the home team. <laughs> so they had a lot of fanfare, meaning the, uh, the Duke Blue devils with uh, Christian Leitner and, and Bobby Hurley. And, and they were very dominant and, you know, for us, I remember in a locker room, uh, Coach Patino pulling out this uh, Sports Illustrated cover that said, Kentucky shame on it and things like that. Just to remind us, you know, how far we have come and how far the program has come and the people in that locker room, how much they contributed to the program being on the rise and, you know, one thing about uh, about that particular game, that nobody was nervous on our particular team, at least I wasn't at that time. And it turned into what I share with people. If you're a weekend warrior or you've played basketball on hardtop hard top or blacktop, whatever you want to call it, or in the gym, and you run into a pickup game, and the pickup game just seems to flow, and the time just just pauses and everything moves slow and you had two hall of fame coaches on the sideline that actually just took a back seat to let the players play mm-hmm. and 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 let the experience happen and i really didn't recall anybody else in the in the arena other than just us as players playing out there so it was a fun game to play in. It was, uh, um, even though we came up on the losing end of it, it was a great competition. A lot of respect there. At least we earned a lot of a lot of respect from the Duke counterparts at that particular time. So it, it was it was a it was a great game to play in. It was probably the, one of the best games that I've ever been a part of. I mean, I played in a lot of games, high school, college, and also pro, but that one sticks out. Not from a wins and losses standpoint, but the flow of the game and the participants of the game and being in the moment—that's something you can't can't really quantify.
1: Yeah, and I remember in that game. Um, well, I remember a lot of things from that game. I remember, you know, we were hitting the threes, and you were nailing threes, and Pelfrey was nailing threes. Of course, I always remember the Leitner stomp where he stomped on Aminu Timberlake, and I think Timberlake. Like I want to. I was wanting to say, well, why don't you just get up and just, even just get into a fight with him or something, get him out of the game? But I think Amina was so shocked at what happened, he just didn't know how to react. And I think you were there and just kind of pushed Leitner off. But
0: yeah, yeah, yeah that was the only guy. Well, uh, I guess you know Amino was pretty shocked that um, it had happened. But to be uh, quite frank, that was the only guy on the team that he could step on that probably somebody wouldn't have gone after. You yeah. Know what I mean, so, so it's kind of like, um, um, at the end of the day, you know, he was just a freshman as well. Yeah. You know? So he didn't have a lot of experience and, and, you know, I'm um, a Chicago kid and dealing with a high level of professional basketball. I'm not professional basketball, but college basketball at that particular time. And um, he was still A developing player So He wanted to be out there I I don't think he uh, uh, Thought about The other side of You know uh, Pushing the guy back Or anything like that Or going after him And even if that Would have happened There was no guarantee That Christian Layton Was going to be Tossed out anyway
1: Exactly
0: And (laughs) And the other part of it Was As a Competitor I want all the Participants to be present So so I wouldn't have liked it If he would have Got kicked out Because that wouldn't have Uh there would there would have been an excuse of you know, there's no telling if we would have won or if we would have lost or, or continued to lose. Who, who knows what would the outcome would have been. But I do know that was one of the greatest games ever played in college basketball history.
1: Yeah, and I remember um, when you got your fifth foul called on you. First off, I thought it was a bad call. I think it was like you did a slap down on the ball and they called you for the fifth foul. Or no, Yeah. I think that was it. And I was like, man, that was just ridiculous. But um, I will never forget when Sean Woods took that last shot. And I thought, man, I'm, I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Great shot. Great shot. And it went in and it went off the backboard and went in. And it was like, I mean, we were just all shocked. And then we're like, oh, we're going to win. We're going to win. There was 2.1 seconds left. And then, of course, the last play where I will never forget that Patino didn't put a man on the ball. And I remember during that season, Darren Fellhouse was so good at at putting pressure on the ball and getting five-second calls. And I've seen in interviews afterwards where Patino just felt that he wanted to surround Leitner because he's like, if he doesn't get the ball, then he's not going to hurt us. But what were you thinking on the sidelines when you saw that?
0: Well, you know, I always trust Coach Patino to this particular day, and um, yeah. even if he decided to take a man off the ball or put two around Christian Leitner, whatever. But I think at the end of the day, you know, uh, somebody was supposed to probably step in and and uh, tip the ball and not just stand behind him. But people fail to remember that, you know, Christian Leitner. Was a um, one of the best college basketball players of all time, mm. and at that particular time, you know, he was nine for nine from the field and and ten for ten from the free throw line. He hits that shot; he's ten for ten, and he's he's a, he played a perfect game. And he was arguably being ref like Michael Jordan. You could exactly. not touch Christian Laettner.
1: That's exactly what I thought. That's exactly
0: so, so. So there was like kind of a hesitation on Palfrey and Feldhouse of even being around him and um so that's why they probably didn't go for ball or they wouldn't want to be called for a foul so yeah. but it's all in the heat of competition and everything like that and it's it's a part of life you deal with success you deal with failure or, like i said before nobody expected us to be in the elite eight at that particular time being in our first year in the tournament with a, guy, a lot of guys who they people didn't even realize or recognize outside of kentucky
1: right you know, after that game, um, I'll never forget, um, I was listening on the radio as well because um, K. Wood Ledford, the legendary Kentucky basketball announcer, was retiring at the end of that season. And um, I remember Coach K came over and talked to K. Wood, and he talked to the Kentucky fans and told them how great of a game it was and how proud they should be of the team and um, you know, congratulating K. Wood as well. And I thought that was a real class move by Coach K., that earned a lot of respect um, in my book. But what did Patino say to the team in the locker room? Because I know it was dejection city in there, but uh, you know it had to be tough for him to go into that locker room. But what did he say to the team?
0: You know, I, um, I think that's when he brought out the, um, we revisited it, that Kentucky shame article, uh, Sports Illustrated. And he just reminded us that, you know, this is just a part of the game, and look how far we have come and what you guys have worked hard for. It didn't culminate in a Final Four or a championship, but people played their tails off, and nobody in that room should walk out of here, you know, with their head down. They should be proud of um, how they participated, how they wore the Kentucky uniform, how they played with integrity, and with they play with heart, play with passion. So it was more of, you know, a reminder of don't forget the journey to get here, you know, and you know, it's a loss and the seniors are not going to be able to move on and play another game. And I had another year to go, another two years I thought. And, uh, and, you know, he just kind of reminded us that this is just a part of the journey and, and don't forget the brotherhood that you guys have built, uh, the family atmosphere and how we cheered one another on some of those five mile runs and conditioning and it all really paid off. and So he, he just kind of just uh, brought everything into perspective.
1: Well, and the thing about that that year too, um, starting the 92-93 the season, I mean, he brought in a top-notch recruiting class. He had Roderick Rhodes, Tony Delk, Walter McCarty, Jared Prickett. And, um, of course, that summer you had an opportunity to play on the development team for the uh, Olympic Dream Team. So it was like you and Grant Hill and I think Penny Hardaway was on that Team, uh, what was it like being on that development team and getting to go against your your Charles Barkleys and Michael Jordans and Larry Bird's and Patrick Ewings and Magic Johnson was, was on that team too.
0: Yeah, it was it was um, a fantastic experience, and it was kind of one of those things where you know that was one of my goals as a high school athlete. And even a middle school athlete, elementary athlete, basketball player was to play in the Olympics. And that was kind of something that I wanted to participate in. And it happened to be that summer in 1992, you know, we didn't get a chance as collegiate athletes other than Christian Leitner because they were taking pros mm-hmm. and that disappointed me quite a bit, but they shot us a bone and said, Oh, okay. You guys can come on and practice with us and, and practice against us. And, it was Eric Montrose, Rodney Rogers, myself, Allen Houston, Grant Hill, Chris Webber, and Penny Hardaway.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they were, they were, And Roy Williams was our coach. And it was a f- fantastic time. We got a chance to stay in the, the same hotel with the Dream Team, got to interact with them. They actually had a whole floor blocked off of security. We got to practice before at another site and then come in and scrimmage against them. And the first day we scrimmaged against them, we actually beat them in the yeah, scrimmage. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah, and a lot of the guys played well. Alan Houston did very well. Nobody could stay in front of Bobby Hurley, who's also on that team. Um, and actually, my roommate on that on that particular team. So it was a, <laughs> a, a great experience to uh, be a part of, and it actually that was the catalyst to me turning professional. Not only did I play well, I felt like I held my own and that I was capable. So it gave me a lot of confidence. And then you're also playing against for a seven-day period and working out with guys you watched on TV, you know. And now you can learn from them, watch them, and how they conduct their business, not only on the court, but how they conduct their business with the, with the media. And that's when I started to really understand the components of being a professional athlete. Uh, not only you have to be in tip-top shape, focused, but you have to be media-savvy, uh, being able to answer all the questions or, or, or give uh, uh, answers that help the reporters out that they feel like they can do their job as well. So mm-hmm. Charles Barkley was probably my favorite that I interacted with. And the Charles Barkley you see today on TNT, that's exactly the same Charles Barkley that was in 1992 dream team. So yeah, the pecking order was magic and bird because they were the elder statesmen. Mm-hmm. Then you, Michael Jordan was clearly the best player. And Charles Barkley, to me, was the second best player. Yeah, And you had guys like Carl Malone there and stuff like that. Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, Scottie Pittman, Chris Mullen, John Stockton. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a great experience. And when I came back from that, Coach Pitino, and I was going to uh, summer school at the University of Kentucky at the time, And so when I came back, Coach Petito pulled me into offices and was like, I got great news for you. This is going to be your last year at the University of Kentucky, and you're turning pro because uh, they guarantee that you're not going to be less than a a top four pick. So that was the catalyst moment for me that I knew that I could play professionally and uh, that the opportunity was was coming closer.
1: Yeah, because I remember when you announced it was in the summer, and I was hanging out with my grandfather because we always went to a lot of big uh, Kentucky games and stuff and I was like man he's announcing before the season even begins and we were just kind of shocked but it was one of those things too where it's like well you know why wouldn't MASH stay another year and wait until the season goes and stuff like that but you know the opportunity to be drafted in the top five it's just something you really can't turn down because you could always come back and what if you get hurt I mean you never know what could happen.
0: Yeah and the thing about it is that A lot of people, unlike in this day and age right now, where, you know, there's a one-and-done rule, most guys only, most guys stay four years or they left as a junior. There were very few sophomores that left. I think Shaquille O'Neal was a sophomore when he left. But, you know, um, Christian Leitner was a four-year player. Grant Hill was a four-year player. And, you know, at that particular time, there was no rookie-scale contract where you're going to be slotted in. You know, you can make a lot of money and have a lot of years just coming and being a rookie. So it was, it was my time to to leave at that particular point and then talking to coach Patino and also CM Newton, you know, they wanted to celebrate me as being a senior rather than me leaving as a junior and, and kind of um, thank me for coming to the program and, and everything like that in this dire time. So for me, it was a, a decision that was actually made for me because uh, once I, uh, went to the uh, the uh, Olympic Dream Team kind of practice. You know, decision was already made by my play, so I didn't really have a, a choice in the matter, and it was the best decision that I did. And if I would have stayed at Kentucky for another year, I would have probably been all time leading scorer, Kentucky, and different things like that. We probably won a national championship, which yes. eventually Coach latino did without me, but. I always looked at it as you know I was probably one of the foundational pillars of that of re-energizing, reigniting, and rebranding the Kentucky program. So I, I was proud of that. That was that was my championship, and and then helping the four seniors uh, get to a place that that they never thought they can get to. So just building all those relationships and everything like that. You know, even though I didn't win a championship in Kentucky, went to a Final Four, mm-hmm. you know, I always felt like a winner um, being a part of that Kentucky history. Well, I
1: remember that junior year. I mean, obviously you had a, another All-American, or that was your first year as an All-American, but an All-SEC Performer, Player of the Year with uh, Billy McCaffrey from Vanderbilt. I know whenever you guys played Vanderbilt, that was always a big game for um, – my area because I was going to high school at Marshall County High School and um, some alum from there uh, Dan Hall and Aaron Beth were on that Vanderbilt team so Dan Hall I don't know if you remember him he was like a 6'8 power forward guy and um, Aaron Beth was like 5'10, 5, 5'11 5, as a point guard. But so some of the teachers always be like, oh, we got to root for Vanderbilt because Dan and Aaron are on the team and I'm, and they're going to beat Kentucky. I'm like, you're not going to beat Kentucky. We have Mashburn. I mean, there's no way Dan Hall can guard Jamal Mashburn. And I remember he always put a lot of points on the board against them. But, uh, but um, you know that year was um, a breakout year for Travis Ford as well, and you know a Kentucky guy. And I thought he was such a critical part of that team because while you could drive and dish and stuff like that, he was this lockdown shooter that when you would drive in and kick it out, he would knock down those threes. Or if he got fouled, he was like a ninety percent foul shooter. And I felt just a real important leader on the team. That, um, that I felt Pelfrey was probably that leader on the ninety one ninety two team. I mean, maybe I was wrong, but but I felt. You know, Ford coming in and being that leader was really critical. So, talk about his play and um, your relationship with him, because I know you still stay in touch with with Travis.
0: Yeah, well, Travis had to. Uh, he came from Missouri, and um, Travis was. Uh, he didn't really understand the Kentucky uh, culture that Rick Pitino built at that particular time. You know, Travis had to get in shape, and and Travis had to learn with some other guys, including myself, and. And uh, when he sat out to come to Kentucky is uh, how to be a leader and how to work hard. So Travis picked it up pretty quickly. And it was a, it was a tough task for Travis. Travis really had to humble himself and, and everything like that. And really figure out what his role was and, and be a a support player, as well as at times make big shots and secure the ball and do a lot of different things. So Travis really grew up in my eyes as a, a player and as a, as a person. And really fit into the team very well because we were a bunch of hard-nosed, scrappy guys and and played really hard. And we were already under Coach Patino for a couple of years. So there was just a a culture about hard work that Travis really had to buy into. So Travis played a big role. Roger Rose played a big role. Mm -hmm. Rodney Dent, Dale Brown, uh, Jamel Martinez. So Junior Braddy, um, Andre Riddick. We had a lot of guys. Uh, Jeff Brasso that, that that played tremendous roles for that um, particular team, and and we it was a camaraderie thing. We all hung with, with one another off the court. We enjoyed each other's company. We supported one another. We fought for one another. It, it was a, a remarkable team in that year. We went on to um, play the five five and the final four. And, um, you know, Dale Brown winds up getting hurt. I know
1: that out. was, that was a killer when he got, when he injured that yeah. shoulder.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's, a it, it was a, a very good team. We were blowing people out in the beginning of the NCAA tournament all the way up to the final four. And then we just ran into a very talented bunch and, uh, the, the fat five and, uh, and then obviously North Carolina and Kansas was in it as well. So it yeah. was a remarkable final four to be in. And actually it was, it was the Final Four in New Orleans. It was my yeah. first trip to New Orleans, and I wound up playing for the New Orleans Hornets, which is now the New Orleans Pelicans. So I came full circle, you know. Yeah. So it's uh we, we really enjoyed it, and um Coach Patino was really happy that we went to a Final Four. It kind of established us um, mm. uh, quite a bit. We were no longer just a, a one hit wonder from back in 1992. So. I, I really enjoyed participating and be on that team. It was a lot of camaraderie and actually a lot of people don't remember Roger Rose was such a huge recruit and a huge talent coming out of Jersey and St. Mm-hmm. Anthony the same school Bobby Hurley came from yeah. that. He was actually our backup and sometimes our starting point guard, you know, and, um, he was a tremendous talent and, uh, you know, all of us, you know, me and Jamel, we stay in touch and a couple of guys, Travis, I stay in touch with him and, you know, he's, um, Try to recruit my son when he's at St. Louis right now. So yeah. me and him is he, me and him have been um has gotten reconnected as well.
1: Yeah, well, and um, I know you're limited on time here, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. Just talk a little bit about what your experience was in the NBA, because of course you go to the Dallas Mavericks, um, put up some big numbers there, then end up with the Heat, and and really have a after the Heat, you went to the Charlotte Hornets and then the Pelicans. And you know had that all star year in t- two thousand three. So talk a little bit about the transition to NBA, some of your experiences there.
0: Yeah, I mean the NBA is a, it's a, an adult league, and I say there's, there's no boys allowed. That's what NBA stands for. When you're a player in the NBA, one of the four hundred or four hundred and fifty guys that are that are in the NBA. And uh, Coach Patino really prepared me well for that. He treated the whole team since he was a New York mid head coach. We traveled just like NBA teams. We shoot around like NBA teams. We worked out like NBA teams. He kept the practice schedule and then kept you accountable um, for your actions just like an NBA player. He expected you to participate as a professional athlete and carry yourself in that manner. And the only thing is we just didn't get paid at the University of Kentucky. So I was ready and the NBA game actually suited my game a lot more in the college game because in college they can obviously zone you up and different things like that and and take you out of the game but the professional game was one-on-one isolation at that particular time in the early 90s in the mid 90s and um, very physical so um, and I was a versatile player so I had some great memories of playing in the NBA Um, was an all-star played on some good teams with the Miami Heat uh, that faced Michael Jordan uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals, and we lost to them. So I played in a great era of NBA basketball and playing against one of the greatest of all time, and, and Michael Jordan and um, and Allen Iverson and all those other guys. So it was a great experience for me. I really enjoyed playing my 11- and 12-year career in the NBA. It's really a grind. You meet a lot of different people. Getting here to the Miami Heat organization, I got traded from the Dallas Mavericks, really taught me and Pat Riley really taught me how to be a professional. And what I mean by that is how to show up every day, no matter what's going on in your life, off the court and still do your job. And -hmm. that's something that I continue to. uh, One of my mantras uh, today is just do your job. You know, and um, um, no matter what's going on or what distraction it is, just show up every day and do your job and put one foot one foot in front of the other. And the other thing Pat Rowley taught me was, um, you know, how to uh, uh, be organized as an athlete, meaning there's direction, there's order, there's a, a process to follow, and also how can you get 1% better? That was his thing, you know, how can you get 1% better? How can you shoot if you're shooting – 39 percent from three can you get to 40 percent because that can be the difference in in us winning a game or two so um i had great coaches hall of fame coaches that i learned a lot from on and off the course so it was a fabulous experience
1: yeah and you had paul uh, paul silas as a coach in new orleans and uh, yeah he always got Dick good
0: motto yeah, yeah. Mata is a, and i was in dallas and uh um, Quinn Buckner was my first year as a as a rookie he was my first coach and also had Jim Clemens who was an assistant coach for all those years that's
1: right he the was the coach after um,
0: yeah. Buckner yeah. so I, I had, a, had a lot of good coaches Byron Scott uh coached me at the end of my career and um, so it, I've had some 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 very very uh, solid coaches and solid people that I've uh, played for and played with.
1: Yeah well I know I always enjoyed watching you play and of course I was a Heat fan um, in those times when you guys were playing the Bulls and I remember a Sean Leonard always and Dan Marley got the assignments of guarding Jordan and I, I kid you not I think if they breathed on Jordan too hard they called a foul but yet Jordan would be all over those guys and of course they let Rodman just wrap up a morning and get him frustrated and not call much and you know the Pippen got that grace as well but like you said you know when you're the champions and uh, you've earned that opportunity you just tend to get those calls and but uh, those heat teams were good they were fun to watch you know we had Tim Hardaway on that team and he's a character as well so um, I enjoyed watching you guys play
0: I uh, appreciate that yeah it was a different era of basketball that was more um, You, people, some people can consider that brand of basketball football or boxing so you choose when we played against the New York Knicks,
1: especially yes the,
0: the scores were in the 80s and sometimes in the 70s and it was a like few a few fights uh, we were wrestling quite a bit so it, sometimes it didn't look like basketball but you know playing on that team and we were a very tough defensive minded team with Alonzo Moore and PJ Brown and myself and Dan Marley, Michelle Lennon, and Tim Hardaway and and backup players that that were journeymen but but veteran guys. So it it was the first team on the pros that I was on that, you know, our goal in the in preseason and, and conditioning and everything was to win a championship. And everybody all thirty teams talk about winning a championship, but there is only a handful that actually have the personnel, the coaching and the organization that can actually Viably compete for a championship, and that was the Miami Heat when I played here. So, yeah. it was it was a great experience. It was, uh, still live in Miami to this day. I enjoy it coming from New York, Miami's like the sixth borough, so it's it's, it's been a lot of fun. And to see people and watch some of my teammates have kids the same age as mine, and as you grow up, and I, I'm a season ticket holder now, uh, for the Miami Heat, been there, been that for the last uh, three, four years or so because my son's got progressively good at basketball and he wants to sit up close and personal and watch the games and, and different things like that. So, you know, they treat me as family and, um, you know, I, I do the same for them as well.
1: You know, one thing about the heat organization too, is, um, they've always tried to put a good product on the, on the court. I know some years we, um, you know, had a, some rebuilding years especially the past few but um when I moved to Miami that's when Dwayne Wade got drafted and I just knew that he was going to be a a great draft pick and I was so excited because he played on the Marquette teams that played against Louisville when I was in law school there and then um of course beat that Kentucky team that had Bogans and Marquis Estel and a really good 2003 Kentucky team so I mean he he just really was such a complete player and then they brought the championship um when shaq came down and alonzo morning was huge on that team as well from as a defensive guy and uh yeah. Then for Dwayne Wade to be able to close his career out with the Heat, I, I was glad to see it because I mean he's a Miami guy and he's, you know Miami really doesn't have too many sports celebrities. You know you got Dan Marino, but and, and yeah, and, but as far and as like
0: 72, a, and the seventy two Dolphins, <laughs> yeah, I mean? so, exactly. So, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, Miami is uh, to me is still a very young city as far as sports is, is concerned. You got a couple of hands, uh, a couple of iconic players and. I would say Dwayne Wade fits in that that particular category. Haslam
1: might be in Um, there now with his longevity and being a Miami senior guy.
0: Yeah, and and Haslam has been one of those guys that's a Miami kid. So it's a great story for him. Go from uh, Miami High to the University of Florida and be a journeyman player and obviously stick with the Miami Heat and uh, and his leadership is – uh, is very valuable those are those intangible things you really can't find in the stat sheet but it comes to play uh, throughout the course of an NBA season of keeping guys focused and, and keeping the perspective in a certain place and not and not being too high or being too low so you know Miami is a a unique place for sports it's an entertainment a city, and there's a lot of things to do other than go to a basketball game or a football game. Yeah. I mean, we we have sunshine year round, and you can wear shorts year round. So there are a lot of options. So when people buy into the Miami Heat and and their heat lifers and and different things like that is something special. So. Yeah, and
1: it's because they put a winning product on the on the court and, like mm-hmm. even a couple of years ago, um, they were like an eight seed or something. But I know that team really resonated with the city because they were hard nosed, playing hard, and you know made this really great run. And the the Miami fans really got behind that because really, I mean, Miami is a it's a hard nosed city. I mean, I know we have the flash with the parties and stuff like that, but it's a it's a town that they appreciate the hard work and a lot of the blue collar nature and so when you play hard um, they're going to support you in Miami if you're not winning and if you're not playing hard they're not going to support you because like you said there are dozens of things you can do in Miami so um, transition from basketball because you know we could talk about that all day and I I don't want to take up too much more of your time but You've turned into quite the businessman. So talk to my audience about how you know you've been living the dream as a basketball player, but then you've got to find a way to live your dream as a as a businessman because it's been quite an impressive uh, story so far.
0: Yeah, so for me, it was um, that was a part of my dream and a part of my goal to carry a briefcase and. When I was in uh, middle school, I used to take the train from 155th Street all the way down to my uh, elementary school and down on 72nd Street. So I used to see the train transition from people wearing jeans and construction clothes to people wearing suits and also carrying a briefcase. So for me, at the end of the day, that's something that I wanted to do. And and, because I also knew that basketball or sports would not last forever because my father, he was a professional boxer and he didn't really, um, uh, last too long, um, as far as a boxer and everything like that. So I knew that there had to be a, a goal afterwards. And that was my goal to, to carry a briefcase. And as a 17 year old King, I didn't know what that really meant. And, uh, I didn't have a mentor or anything like that, that necessarily can direct me in that particular route. So I had to really figure it out on my own. And, and luckily for me, coach Patino, Listened to my dream and really understood it, and was willing to help me. And uh, he introduced me to my business partner um, that I still have to today. We've been business partners for 26 years, and Coach Patino participates in some of the stuff that we do. Mm-hmm. So we consider ourselves all partners as well. And. For me, it's uh, something that I've always wanted to do. So I've been involved in the franchise business and the car business for a long period of time, over 20 years, and really, uh, really enjoyed uh, that success and really gaining a lot of knowledge and uh, real estate as well. So I've been with a number of brands and uh, Toyota, Lexus, Papa John's, Outback Steakhouses, Dunkin' Donuts. So done quite a bit and still looking to do uh, a little bit more, a lot more, I would say, and uh, learned a whole lot. And utilizing my basketball career and being around a lot of great coaches, how to understand people, how to lead people, how to pivot, how to deal with adversity, how to be patient all those things from my basketball career, playing from a little guy at 10 years old to, um, being a professional athlete, I've really, really learned a lot. And that was kind of my, um, being an MBA was actually my MBA that most people go yeah. to school again. So, um, done very well and looking to pass along information to both my kids and they've been very receptive and, uh, things have gone wrong.
1: Yeah. Um, and you know, it's interesting too. you, um, with your success in business, you look at a lot of the NBA guys now or even recently. I mean, Shaq has been a tremendously successful business person. He even got his doctorate degree down at Barry University in Miami. And, of course, he's been big in advertising. And he's part of Papa John's now. But you look at, like, your LeBron James and your Kevin Durant and all these NBA guys – they're not just players anymore. They're brands and they've got business deals with movies or tech companies. And they're, I mean, very savvy. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's impressive uh, because, you know, back when you and I were growing up, it was sort of like, well, he's an athlete and that's all he's or she's going to be. But they're, they're, very astute business people, and I think um, you know that's a, a testament to having mentors like Patino and other people to guide people along the way. And you, like you said, if you put in the hard work, it doesn't matter where you come from, whether it's small town Kentucky or New York or whatever, you can succeed if you put forth the effort and have the right drive and, and some common sense.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm a big believer in um, having goals and having goals that run parallel. I mean, I, I don't think you could, you know, I, I had more than one goal. I want to be a professional basketball player and also I wanted to be a, a business guy, you know, and I wanted to be a different business guy than than most people kind of recognize from professional athletes where they build brands and they endorse products and they become a business endorser as they graduate from not being on the court so what I created was an operating company that actually operates those businesses. And I don't do anything as far as putting my name on anything. You know, we actually operate the businesses. And so we deal in touch with the people day to day and built an organization that, that, um, um, allows us to participate in opportunities. And, and, um, from my basketball days, it's all about teamwork, you know, yeah. um, teamwork makes the dream work, you know? So once you get everybody on the same page and with the same intention, and the honesty and um and and also people that are capable and have the capacity to help you execute. So for me it's um I'm happy to see guys nowadays um look at LeBron James and other guys that have uh, um, uh Paul George, uh, Kevin Durant, uh, um, Chris Paul, guys like that are they're, they're doing Andre Iguodala, Draymond Green. He, yeah they've really, really looked at past players because all the the one thing that I always mentioned to the uh, Players Association, and they when I was playing was um, you know, it's great that you keep on telling us about the people that have failed and that are going bankrupt. And I appreciate those stories, and I appreciate them sharing their stories. But can you share with us the people that have been successful? in doing this and I had to reach out to guys on my own such as Junior Bridgman and also Dave Bing who was once a mayor of Detroit and also owned his own steel company so there are a lot of guys that even before me, um, Magic Johnson. Dr. Um, J. Yeah, people like that. Dr. J was with Coca-Cola back mm, in the day. So yeah. so for me, there, there's a lot of guys that that have blazed the path. I just continue to, you know, um, utilize the teachings that I have from some very good coaches and also some very good players that you have in-depth conversations when you're traveling along in the NBA as well. And you spend a lot of time with guys. So you get a chance to pick up a lot of diverse of thought and also stuff you you don't take away you know what I mean yeah. that you discard you know so it's uh basketball to me has been more than just the game it's been a tool that teaches lessons about life business uh, uh, spirituality emotional healing this basketball to me has been the springboard and um something in my life that that uh, I still love to this day but don't want to play competitively unless it's Sunday or Saturday with a couple of few guys that we run around here in Miami with, and nobody realizes that they're not getting the contract, but they they still want to play. But it's been, it's been a lot of fun journey has been great and uh, the business and the name recognition and the access that you have by being an NBA player or even a a top college player like at the University of Kentucky doors do open but it's oftentimes what do you do once you get in the door
1: yeah that's definitely true because I mean at Kentucky it's such, such a special brand and university because if you go to play basketball at Kentucky whether you're a, an all-American player like you or even like a middle-of-the-road guy they there are always connections there and it's up to you to take advantage of those connections and and um, you know, try to achieve your dream. Because well,
0: that's why that's why I look at the college environment. I don't think college is for everybody. I don't think you know, you should make a kid go to college to, to get to the pros, and that should be mm-hmm. part of the path. I think everybody should have their own right to do what they want to do. if they want to go overseas, they want to turn pro, whatever it may be. But you know at the end of the day, the college experience to me is really a social, a social experiment of people and relationships that you build over a particular time, either people in that particular school or alumni, boosters, whatever it may be, I think is all a source of education.
1: Yeah. What is your thought, though, on this? Uh, I mean, we have the one-and-done rule right now. I think the NBA Players Association, they're in talks with the NCAA to maybe make it a two-year requirement, or I guess someone could just opt out. But uh, what's your take on that, being someone who left early, but you understood, hey, in college you know there are certain benefits the player doesn't get, but yet there are a lot of benefits to being that college player?
0: Well, my, my, my feeling is that the player should have the ability to make a decision for themselves and not necessarily have to go to college if they don't want to go to college. To me, there's, you know, this has become the college game, football and basketball and other sports have become, those are the two main drivers of college football and different things like that and college basketball of of economics at that level. So, for me, if a kid doesn't want to go to college, he shouldn't have to but be forced to go to college. He should be able to turn pro Whenever he wants to turn pro, I mean, I'm not talking about a kid. Obviously, if you're going to turn pro, you got to have the information that you're going to be selected. I'm not saying a guy just walks out of bed and says, you know, I want to turn pro today and never yeah. picked up the ball. <laughs> you know, for
1: me, I'm not going to declare for the day draft. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah, so for me, it's uh, to me, it's a personal choice. And I think some kids nowadays, I mean, if, if, if we look at it, you know, they don't want to go to school. You know, they found their passion and something that they want to do. And some people look at if you're not playing in the NBA, you're not successful. And I've known a number of guys who've had 15, 20 year careers overseas in different countries and made a lot of money. And nobody's ever heard of them except the people over there, over in the countries that they played in. You can you would just walk by them in the States. And for me, that's success. I mean, how many people come out of college can have a six figure income? Very rare, you know, So to me, I don't think they should hand over a rule that allows a kid that he's mandatory, that he has to go to college. I think it should be a choice. If somebody makes a bad decision and they weren't ready to go pro, hey, that's part of life. We're not here. We're here to protect a lot of our children. But at the end of the day, when they're 18, 19 years old, they're going to make choices that they feel is right as long as they got the right information. So. Or, or just information in general So for me, I don't think it should be Any limit or On the capacity for them to turn pro and If they want to go to school They go to school, but if you have a one year One and done rule, a one year rule or A two year rule, you know Certain kids really don't want to go to class No and it, Yeah, and there's kids in, in college that are regular students that don't want to go to class either, and they probably don't go to class either. So I yeah. mean, um,
1: they're there for the the experience. They're, they're, yeah, they're there for the extracurricular activities, <laughs> exactly. which is great,
0: you know. So, but and we all participated in them. So it's a part of you know people's journey. Everybody has their own individual, individual journey. I just dislike it when they say they're trying to protect the kid, and the kid wants he should get an education and education does not necessarily mean a traditional education in my mind, you know, travel is a part of education. There's a lot of different things. And, you know, some of the kids that go one year, they're not going to get a degree. I understand the value of a degree, but you talk to some entrepreneurs, most people don't value it. You know, uh, they value real world experience. So I, I, I sit on the fence of, if you don't want to go to college, don't go to college. If you want to go to college, then commit to college, you know, and um, there should not be a uh, determining fact that you have to stay X amount of years.
1: Yeah, and you know, the, um, the comment about just from what the entrepreneurs look at, I mean, that's really true even in my profession. I mean, as I work for a big real estate developer in Central Florida, and so going back and forth between Miami and there, but one of the things we're finding difficulty in is getting enough skilled laborers who are in the trades, where it's be the plumbers, electricians, things like that, and you know, when you and I were growing up, it was, well, you got to go to college, you got to go to college and get your degree, and if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, you have to do that, or a teacher, you have to do it, but- More of these um, trade schools now, they're really pushing that through the high schools, and the high schools are doing that as well because you can get a job that pays you pretty good in that skilled labor and it's a good career. And bottom line, and you look at all the tech people and stuff like that, the tech people are probably, if they're not the most valuable people in the country or in the company, they're like in the top three for sure because you've just got to have that and you may be able to get that.
0: Yeah, so you don't necessarily need college and, and different things like that, and some people do value college, and some people need college. I was a person that needed to go to college. I couldn't turn pro out of high school, so I wasn't ready for that. But yeah. that was my journey. That was my, my my choice. But if I chose the different route, I don't I don't see why you can 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 hold me out or something. You know what I mean? If I wanted to return to college and I never played college, but I tried out professionally, didn't make it, you know don't necessarily need eligibility at that particular point because I probably won't be playing in college, but I can still go to school, you know, mm. if I want to as a regular student. So I just think certain rules are made for uh, certain people because they can provide an economic benefit, Yeah, um, and, you know? So, but Hey, that's the, the world we live in in business. And I think nowadays, I think a lot of kids and parents and are starting to reassess at least the top athletes, are starting to at least in the basketball world are starting to reassess the value of college i mean my son is a four-star basketball player in the class of 2020 they probably had two or three or four guys that have already said you know we're not going to college mm-hmm. you know uh, we're going overseas guys that are reclass of 2019 we're going overseas uh, we're sitting out a year to train for professional basketball player basketball you know um so it's it's a uh, it's uh, to each his own, and yep. everybody has their own journey and their own live. And I wish everybody well. Of it, <laughs> as long as they have the right information.
1: Right. Well, my final question for you, so because um, I, I don't want to keep you any longer, because you've been very gracious with your time, and I really appreciate it. What's it like now being the dad of the of the the son who's going through the recruiting process?
0: It's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a it's a lot of fun, and um, it's also I'm 46 years old now, and I I from my particular standpoint is I have no regret because I left everything that I had out there on the basketball court so I can sit and watch my son and watch him from a pure standpoint and not try to relive a goal or, or relive a journey or something like that I can provide him with information that he needs or if he doesn't want it you know what i mean so me and him have really his name is jamal masvern junior he goes to bruce academy up in new hampshire and they won a national championship last year and mm-hmm. you know he's down to his final four schools now which are cal berkeley lake forest minnesota and also auburn
1: yeah i heard about so, the i heard about the auburn one
0: so yeah so he's uh really serious and we got official visits set up already so it, it's been a it's been a blast to sit there and watch him play and watch him grow, not only as a player, but as a person, go travel to his AAU games. He played on the EYBL circuit this year and in years prior, he played on the Under Armour circuit. So just going to watch him participate and to really be the best version of himself. And that's something that I stress to him consistently and He's a competitive kid, can really shoot the ball, plays both ends of the court, I'm a combo guard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it could be difficult for him, you know, being the son of a professional athlete. But if you ask my son, he can't remember me playing, you know, because he was so young. Right. And so he doesn't recall it. A lot of kids his age don't recall me playing, but their parents recall me playing, Yeah. you know? And so for me to watch him play and to grow into his own player, I, I work them out. I, I impart physical wisdom on them, and and uh, uh, mental, and different things like that, and show them different things. So I work with them quite a bit, and um, but I also give him and watching they give allow him the freedom to really become his own person, and that to me was is cool to watch, and being able to really help him along in this process of what questions to ask because I've already been through the college process and being recruited, how to decipher certain things and how to be uh, pretty direct in things that you want or questions or answers that you want and not to really buy into all the fluff that everybody is selling and really get down to the nitty gritty of uh, of um, why you wanna go to that school and why they need you or want you. So for me, it's been a, it's been a blast. I've really enjoyed myself. I've really watched him you know, um, learn about on the court, off the court, and be a productive player, be a productive person, and a character that he has. So it, it's, it's been a wonderful experience.
1: Yeah, I know that um, I had the opportunity to meet him briefly when. Um you invited me to that kentucky game at the, the hall of fame classic in miami and of course that was a few years ago but he was well spoken and i've read some interviews with him on um i guess it was rivals.com where he was looking at hospitality which um i don't know if he's still interested in that but uh yeah. that's a field that you uh, are in professionally so that's good and you know, he was focused on not only just the basketball side but also um the academic side and business side and that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier that the the modern athlete today a lot lot of them they're not just about the sports they're about the business and being educated and knowing how to handle these situations because they're going to have these opportunities and Correct. so Correct. well i wish Correct. him the best of luck I, I will say this the only university of those four that i've been to i've been to auburn university i've uh, visited there for um, a conference with a, a lawyer i worked with and it was a a college town. I mean, great facilities, and so it's a really nice place. I, I enjoyed my stay there, but being there with Bruce Pearl, that <laughs> it, I mean, that is entertainment in and of itself. And it was a it, even though they beat Kentucky, which I wasn't rooting for them there, that was a fun Auburn team to watch last year. And if um that Okiki hadn't gotten hurt, yeah. man, I think they might have won the whole thing. If Assuming Kentucky hadn't come back and and beat him, but um, it's been good to see what he's done there. I think is Danny Manning still the coach at Wake Forest?
0: Yeah, Danny Manning's the coach at Wake Forest, and also a um, assistant coach uh, uh, that I played with down here at the Miami Heat. He, he's an assistant coach at Wake Forest now, Rex Walters.
1: Oh um, yeah, so he played at Kansas. Yes.
0: yeah. So there's a there's a uh, and obviously Minnesota, Richard Petino Richard Petino, yep. yeah, and Cal with uh, coach Mark Fox and everything like that, and actually a teammate of. Uh, my son uh, uh, plays uh, from Brewster Academy, is a freshman at, uh, at Cal. So there's connections all over the place. And, uh, you know, he's going to have a fun time um, making that decision. I'm going to help him with that decision and, and uh, uh, I'll make sure that he uh, makes the best one for himself. And, you know, I'm enjoying watching it, you know, and I'm watching him grow and everything like that and, and watching him be a player. And, it, and the main thing that I enjoy is, with him at this particular stage is I'm no longer I'm his I was his basketball coach when he's younger from an individual development standpoint but now I'm his dad and his friend mm-hmm. I really enjoy that part of it more than anything and you know my son would tell anybody who him how is how is your dad when games and different things like that and you know when we get in the car you know, I don't say anything about games, good or bad. You know, I allow him to, if he wants to talk about it, he talks about it. If he doesn't, we don't. We go on and we be father and son. And, and, and uh, everywhere we've been throughout the country, we've always had a blast. And it necessarily didn't include him playing. It's yeah. just our camaraderie together. So I, I really enjoy being a parent and, and watching him grow.
1: Well, and the whole story of, you know, your life and where you are right now, it's it fits in well with the Live in the Dream theme that I I wanted for this podcast is people that they find success in, in business or whatever personal enjoyment they have, but they, they find the time to also have that connection, whether that great family person or that you know that great parent who helps with the, the sports or the school, or they find that time to do what they want to keep them happy. Because at the end of the day, you only get one shot at this this life, and you right. want to make the the best opportunity that m- make the most of your opportunities. And I think you're a perfect example of that. So I was just so happy to have you on the show and you know, it was kind of odd how we ended up, um, meeting again. Cause I mean, I met you as a fan at Kentucky yeah. and, and everything, but, uh, you know, as fate would have it, I got called to assist on a real estate deal for yeah. a client and it turned to fi- come to find out you were involved. And I was like, man, this is <laughs> this is like perfect. And I mean, I got the call like right before the the Kentucky Louisville game. And I was like, oh, man, but for this particular client, I was going to do whatever I needed to do. And so yeah. it's kind of a small uh, world.
0: Yeah, yeah, small world. You've always been uh, gracious and good to us, Ben. So anything you need from us and I'm glad you uh, allowed me to participate in this uh, a podcast and you know I'm a big believer in uh, you know there are no coincidences you know everybody's on their journey and and you know at this particular uh, juncture of my life yeah, I'm more attached to the smaller things I can't You know, I've played in a lot of basketball games and watched a lot of basketball. And like I tell my son, it's the relationships that I build that matter the most.
1: Yeah. Well, Jamal, thanks again for um, the time. I really appreciate it. I I now owe you a dinner the next time I'm in town because I kept you (laughs) longer than my my promised time. But um, before I leave, is there, um, like, for your fans or people, is there a way they can follow you on social media or through a website to keep up with you? or even if yeah, they want to follow your son?
0: Yeah, uh, uh, they can follow me on Instagram. I'm not very heavy on Instagram. It's just uh, Jamal Mashburn, or you can follow me on Twitter at Jamal Mashburn. Um, you can find my son. You can just find him, Jamal Mashburn1, or something like that. So uh, for me, I'm, I'm pretty low-key. I just kind of do my deal. and uh, uh, You see me when you see me, or you don't see me, but I'm just enjoying life. But I appreciate everybody and uh, for all the support that people have showed Throughout the course of the years, uh, uh, Kentucky, New York, and all the cities that I've played in professionally, and, and still living in Miami, people are, are have always treated me kindly, because I've always treated them kindly. So
1: Yeah, um, the golden rule always, still works.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. Treat people how you want to be treated, you know, and I want to be treated well, you know. So.
1: Well, and of course, we got the SEC basketball tournament in Tampa this year, so... Yeah, that's yeah. that's Hopefully gonna be fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, Jamal, thanks again for everything. I really appreciate it, and once again, thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks a lot, Ben. Appreciate All right. it.
1: All right, have a good night. You too. Man. Bye. Bye. I tell you what, folks, that was a living the dream moment for me right there. Um, you know, Jamal Mashburn was was my favorite player growing up uh, as a Kentucky Wildcat fan. I mean, and that was a, a big, big uh, moment right there for me. So I'm glad you guys were able to experience that journey with me and, and to see what a cool guy Jamal is and um, you know the success he's had not only on the basketball court but off the court. And um, now as he's guiding his son toward a college basketball career, that's a pretty awesome thing to be able to do as a dad. So um, anyway, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Make sure um, you follow Jamal on social media. And also, basketball season is just around the corner. So stay tuned for our podcast as we continue to live the dream, not only through sports, but also life in general. So have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us online at benandrodney.com. And follow us on Instagram at benwilsonmiami.